0: The Old Testament reading for today is Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. And then the New Testament reading, Luke 9, 28 through 36. That will be our sermon text, Luke 9, 28 through 36. Here in Isaiah 42, we find a beautiful prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, Isaiah writing many hundreds of years before the Christ was born. Isaiah 42, verses 1-9. through Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench." Again, I say a beautiful prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. He is the Lord's servant. He is the Lord's chosen one. Upon Him the Spirit has been poured out. He is the one who has been given as a covenant for the people. Let's go now to Luke 9 and we will read verses 28-36. through Now about eight days after these sayings, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of the word of God this morning. Glory is what this passage is about. I hope you can see that even upon a first reading of this text. Uh, this passage is about glory. It is about Christ, the Son of Man, in glory. I want you to look back to the previous passage with me briefly. In Luke nine twenty six, we hear Christ say, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is the Son of Man. This title emphasizes Jesus' true humanity. He is the person of the eternal Son of God incarnate. So, He is the true and natural Son of God, who is also a true Son of Man. The title, Son of Man, also shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7. He is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, verse 13. The King to whom God, the Ancient of Days, has given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. At the end of the previous passage, we heard Jesus say something somewhat mysterious to His followers. After speaking of His glorious appearance at the end of time, He said, But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What was the meaning of this mysterious saying? Well, some things are very clear. Jesus taught in that moment that only some of His followers would see the kingdom of God before they died. The question is, what is meant by the kingdom of God? Well, I think it is the context that clarifies what Jesus meant. He had just spoken of the glory that would be His one day. And then immediately after this saying of Jesus, we are told the story of the transfiguration. Some of Jesus' followers, only three, Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain with Jesus, and they saw Him transfigured. The text says in verse 29, And as He was praying, the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothing became dazzling white. And in verse 32 we read, Now Peter and those who were with Him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw His glory, and the two men who stood with Him, that is to say, Moses and Elijah. And so I ask you, what did Jesus mean when He said in Luke 927, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I think he must have been speaking of this event that we are now considering today the event of the transfiguration. There on the mountain, a few of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, were given a glimpse of the glory of the eternal kingdom of God. They were given a glimpse of the glory of Of Christ the King. Uh, Or we might say they were given a preview of the glory that would belong to Christ in the future and for all eternity in God's eternal kingdom. As I have said, this passage that we are considering today is about glory the glory of Christ the King, the Son of Man, and the glory of God's eternal kingdom. We use the word glory often. And we use it in different ways. Firstly, we use the word glory as an adjective to describe something that is splendid. God is a most pure spirit. He is invisible in His essence. But He gloriously manifests Himself in the heavenly realm that He made in the beginning. And those men who have been given a glimpse into the heavenly realm seem to struggle to find the words to describe what they saw. You may go to Revelation 4, 3 through 6 later today to, to read one such passage where John is given a glimpse into the heavenly realm, and he he's using the best language he can to describe what he saw. He uses the language of, of lightning and a sea of glass, and he Uh, uses the most precious of emeralds that we know of here on earth in order to describe the glory that He saw in the heavenly realm. There God manifests Himself gloriously before the angels in heaven and the saints who have gone to glory. The word glory is used in that way here in the passage that is open before us. Here we see that Christ was transformed and appeared glorious. Again, the text says, the appearance of His face was altered, and His clothing became dazzling white. And when Peter, James, and John became fully awake, they saw His glory. You know that Christ typically looked like a common man, but in this moment, He appeared glorious. The second way we use the word glory is as a verb. God is glorious and worthy to receive all praise, and we are to give Him glory. We are to live For His glory. What does this mean? We use this word often in church as we gather together. We are to live for the glory of God. We are to give God glory. Well, to give God glory does not mean that we make Him glorious or add to His glory in any way. I hope you understand that. You and I cannot give anything to God that He does not already have, for He is God, He possesses all things. And you and I cannot add anything to God... Not even glory, for he is perfect in every way. He is most glorious. He is not lacking in glory or in any of his other attributes, so that we might add to him. With God, his attributes are his perfections. He is most glorious. So, to give God glory means not that we add to his glory, but that we acknowledge his perfect glory and seek to exalt or magnify the glory that is perfectly His. To give God glory is to exalt Him, it is to praise Him, it is to acknowledge that He is most glorious, most holy, and most worthy to receive praise from all His creatures. And so I am saying that the word glory is sometimes used as an adjective to describe something splendid, and sometimes it is used as a verb to describe something we are to do. We are to give glory to God. We are to give glory to Christ, the eternal Son of God. Incarnate. There is a third way that we use the word glory. I think it is probably the most uncommon use of the three. But it is a very important use, biblically speaking. The word glory can also be used to describe a state of being or mode of existence. When a brother or sister in Christ dies, we might say that they have gone to Glory. They have gone to glory. And by this we mean, yes, they have gone into the glorious presence of God to behold His glory there. But more than this, we mean that they have passed into a new state of being. They enjoy now a new mode of existence. No longer are they plagued by things like sickness or sorrow, trials and tribulations. No longer are they plagued by the temptation to sin, No, having been translated into a state of glory, they are no longer plagued by these things. And in their souls they have been freed from all these afflictions in heaven as they behold the glory of God. They await the consummation, the resurrection of their bodies, and the glory of the new heavens and earth. I think it is very important for us to see that this word glory can be used to describe a state of being or a mode of existence. Chapter 9 of our Confession of Faith uses the word glory in this way, as a state of being. Chapter 9 of our Confession is all about the topic of free will, a topic that we are not considering this morning. But it explains how free will operates in the various states of being that humans have existed. Adam was a human with free will who lived in an upright state of innocency for a time. This was his state of being in the garden before sin entered the world. Life in this state of, of being uh, was Adam's in the garden, but a, the state of glory, which we are here about to consider, was offered to him. We must remember this. life li- live, Excuse me, Adam lived life in a state of innocency in the garden. He was in a garden paradise there. There was no sin. There was no death. It was a, a wonderful place. But life in the state of glory was offered to Adam. Life in the state of glory was symbolized by the Sabbath day. It was also symbolized by the tree of life. Life in glory was promised to Adam in the covenant that God gave him. What did he need to do to enter into glory? He had to keep God's law. But as you know, Adam fell short of the glory of God he fell from the state of innocency into a new state of being. He was still a human, but after he sinned against God, he, stayed, he fell into a state of sin and death. And this is the state of being that you and I were born into, given that Adam was our representative. By the way, this is not a sermon on free will, but I, I, I need to say that free will is not so free in this current state of being. Uh, that human beings exist in, in their fallen state. We are still free. We retain the ability to act upon choice. The problem is that our minds, our affections and wills are corrupted by sin and bent towards evil, so that we are not able to choose God and the good according to our natural condition. When we are in this state of sin, the state into which we are born, we are bent towards evil. We are opposed to God. We are opposed to the good. But as you know, God is merciful. He has provided a Savior. And by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, God frees us from our natural bondage to sin and enables us to freely choose Christ and to place our faith in Him. Furthermore, through the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to more and more obey God's law. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is because God has set you free from bondage to sin. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is because God has given you this new life. He has given you this Holy Spirit. More and more you are able to obey God's law, but corruptions and imperfections remain. And therefore sin remains, even for us who live now in this state of grace. So what state of being did Adam live in? He lived for a time in the state of innocency. When he ate of the forbidden tree... He fell from that state of innocency into a state of sin and death. Glory was offered to Him, but He fell short of it. He fell instead into a state of sin and death. God, being merciful, has saved some through Christ the Messiah, through Christ the Lord. Those who have faith in Him have been translated into a new state of being, the state of grace. It is the state that you and I live in now It is the the state of being that you and I live in now if we have Jesus Christ as our Savior and have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. But what state of being do we long to be in? What state of being do we long to be in? We long to be in the state of glory that was offered to Adam but forfeited. As it pertains to the subject of free will, it will be in the state of glory only that the will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to do good alone. When we are in the state of glory, we will no longer be plagued, as I have said, by sickness and death, by trials and tribulations. We will no longer be plagued by sin, but we will be confirmed in our righteousness, having been translated into this new state of being. When will we be in this state of glory? The answer is that when we die, or when Christ returns to make all things new. Those who die in the Lord are translated into the state of glory. Their souls enter into glory while their bodies lie in the grave. When Christ returns, the dead will be raised and reunited with their souls. Then those in Christ will live forever in the state of glory in the new heavens and earth. The question we must ask is, how do we get to this state of glory? How do we get there? One way to answer this question is to say, through faith in Jesus Christ, it is only through faith in Jesus the Messiah that we will enter into glory. Adam could have entered into glory by obeying God's law, but he sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And yes, I am here alluding to Romans three twenty three, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, you know what I was taught that meant growing up? What this meant, I was told, and it's not hard to see why people think this, is that sin is failing to give God glory. Do you see how the word is there being used as a verb? For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, to fail to give God glory is the essence of sin. That's true. I do not debate that fact. But I think the word glory there is being used to refer to a state of being. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, because of sin, we have not entered into glory. And it's a reference to Adam's sin, his failure to enter into glory. And our sin in Adam, our failure to enter into glory. We cannot, through the keeping of the law, enter into glory for we are sinners. But of course, what Paul is concerned to present to us in the wonderful book of Romans is that the way into glory has been opened up to us through faith in Jesus the Messiah. The way to glory through obedience to the law is closed. It is only through faith in Jesus the Messiah that we could enter into glory now. And that is the obvious answer to the question that I have just asked How do we get to this state of glory? But today when I ask the question, how do we get to this state of glory, I do not wish to focus on the question, what must we do to enter glory? I know that the answer to that question is clear to most of you. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That is the answer. What I mean is, how was the way to glory opened up for us? We know how the way to glory was lost through Adam's sin, but how was it opened up? In other words, how is it that trusting in Jesus will bring us into this glorious estate of being? What did He do to open up the way? And it seems to me that this story about Jesus being transfigured on the mountain is very much about this. Here, Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of Christ, the Son of Man, in glory. The story we are considering today is its very marvelous Uh, someone, one of the members of this church walked up to me this morning, didn't even say hello, just said, I can't wait to hear the sermon today because this passage is fascinating. It is a fascinating passage. This is a marvelous thing to consider. Jesus was transfigured up on the mountain before Peter, James, and John. Look at verse verse 28 of chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with Him Peter and John and James and went up On the mountain to pray. Notice a few things about this verse. One, notice Jesus' practice of prayer. As the Son of Man, he was disciplined to pray. As the Son of Man, he drew himself, drew strength for himself from the Father. As the Son of Man, he enjoyed communion with God in prayer. And we are to imitate our Lord and be people of constant prayer as well. Two, notice that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. These are the, and I quote, some standing here of Luke 9.27 who were in this moment blessed to see the glory of the kingdom of God before they tasted death. As you probably know, Peter, James, and John were leaders within the band of apostles and Peter was preeminent. Three, notice the mention of the eighth day. Though I cannot prove it, I do suspect that there is significance here. In the previous passage, Jesus revealed to His disciples what kind of Christ He would be. In Luke 9.22 we hear Christ say, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So in the previous passage, Jesus revealed His future suffering to His disciples. He would one day go to Jerusalem and suffer there and be killed there. He told them about that. He also hinted at how He would die when He called His disciples to follow Him by taking up their own crosses. So He would die, and it appears uh, that He implied here that He would die on a cross. And it was eight days after this, that is eight days after these sayings of Jesus regarding His sufferings, that Christ was raised to glory on the mountain of transfiguration. I think we are to see this eight-day period as an anticipation, a kind of trial run of sorts, of the sufferings Christ would experience in Jerusalem and His being raised to glory. He would eventually enter Jerusalem. He would suffer there and be rejected. His suffering would culminate in His death on the cross. But on the eighth day after His entry into Jerusalem, He would be raised to glory. So can you see The pattern the pattern was established when Christ spoke of His sufferings and eight days later entered into glory temporarily on the mountain here, the Mount of Transfiguration. And the pattern would find its fulfillment when Christ did actually suffer in Jerusalem, die, He would be buried, and He would be raised to glory on the eighth day. The eighth day being another way of speaking of the first day of the week. It is interesting that Matthew and Mark say the Transfiguration took place six days after the previous sayings. Some might look upon this and say, well, we have a contradiction in Scripture. Luke said eight days later, and Matthew and Mark say that the Transfiguration took place six days after the previous sayings. But there is no real contradiction. These are simply different ways of counting time. Uh, We should remember that Luke uh, was writing to a primarily Gentile audience uh, Matthew and Mark uh, perhaps writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so this is a different way of, of counting days. While Matthew and Mark counted the days in between Jesus' sayings about His suffering and the event of the Transfiguration, Luke included the days of the sayings and the Transfiguration in his account. you understand how this works? So instead of six, we have eight. But in both instances, I think it is interesting to note that Matthew, Mark, Luke and Luke all wanted to uh, emphasize the, the period of about a, uh, about a week that passed uh, between Jesus speaking of his sufferings and death and his glorification on the mountain. My, my point is that they all seem to treat this as a kind of anticipation of Jesus' sufferings and death in Jerusalem during what is traditionally called the Passion Week and his resurrection on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, also called the eighth day. In verse 29 we read, "...and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." Here are my suspicions about this event, anticipating the Passion Week in Jerusalem, are strengthened. What did Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah about when He was with them on the mountain? What did they discuss? They spoke with Him about His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so here we have a reference to Christ's death and resurrection, also His ascension to the Father's right hand. Christ would suffer and die. He would be buried and then He would be raised. And He would be raised in a state of glory, would He not? He would be raised in a glorified state. And in that state of being, He would ascend to the Father's right hand. Forty days later, He would ascend in glory. And this is what He spoke with Moses and Elijah about, as they were glorified with Him on the mountain. So let's talk for just a moment about Moses and Elijah. First of all, we might ask the question, Were Moses and Elijah present with Jesus bodily? Or did Peter, James, and John see a vision of them? John Calvin takes up this question in his commentary on the harmony of the Gospels. I think it is an interesting question to ask. He asks, were Moses and Elijah actually present? Or was it only an apparition that was exhibited to the disciples as the prophets frequently beheld visions of things that were absent? Though the subject admits, as we say, of arguments on both sides, yet I think it is more probable that they were actually brought to that place. There is no absurdity in this supposition, for God has bodies and souls in His hand and can restore the dead to life at His pleasure whenever He sees it to be necessary. Moses and Elijah did not then rise on their own account, but in order to wait upon Christ. It will next be asked, How, come the apostles, how came the apostles to know Moses and Elijah, whom they have, had never seen? The answer is easy. God who brought them forward gave also signs and tokens by which they were unable to know them. It was thus by an extraordinary revelation that they obtained the certain knowledge that they were Moses and Elijah. Uh, Again, this is John Calvin in his commentary on the harmony of the Gospels. An interesting question to, to ponder. But how did Moses and Elijah get there? Well, they were there present with Christ in glory somehow. And of course, this was by the miraculous power of God that He that He worked in that moment. Uh, Secondly, and I think more importantly, we must ask, why did Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus? Why these two? There are a few things to say about this. One, when Christ appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah, it was to show that He was not Elijah or one of the other prophets of old, as many suspected. You remember that this was the theory that many had Who is this Jesus? Well, maybe He is John the Baptist. Maybe He's Elijah. Maybe He's one of the prophets of old. Well, here here Christ is seen along with Elijah and with Moses. Two, when Christ appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah at His side, it was to show that Jesus Christ is greater. Jesus, you can see, is the central figure in this passage. He is set apart as distinct. He is set apart as superior to Moses and Elijah. In this moment, Jesus was exalted above Moses and Elijah, these great figures from the Old Covenant era. Three, notice how Moses and Elijah took a special interest in Jesus and in His work. I think this is the, the wonderful thing to ponder about this text. Here, Moses and Elijah, these great men, are standing with Jesus, and they are very much interested in Jesus. They are very much interested to talk with Jesus about the work that He was then doing. Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about His departure. That is an interesting way of putting things, isn't it? They wanted to talk with Jesus about His departure. They wanted to talk with Him about His his death, His resurrection, His ascension. As I have said, this passage is all about glory. It's all about the Son of Man entering into the state of glory. They conversed with Him concerning the work He was about to do. And they knew something about Christ and His work because they testified concerning Him long before. And this will become a major theme in Luke's Gospel. Luke will tell us that after Christ was raised to glory, He appeared to His disciples and taught them, saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. This is a major theme in Luke's Gospel. He wants us to see that Christ entered into His glory through suffering. And He also wants us to know for certain that this is what Moses and the prophets anticipated. This is what they spoke of ahead of time. Christ has come in, f- in fulfillment to them. For when Christ appeared with Moses and Elijah, He was showing Himself to be the fulfillment and end of the law and prophets. This was the end of the Law and the Prophets, meaning this was the telos, this was the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. This was the end, therefore, of that Old Covenant order over which Moses and Elijah stood. Moses, the great lawgiver, and Elijah, the great prophet of God. Here they are with Jesus, conversing with Him about His departure. In other words, His entering into glory. He is the fulfillment of all that they have said. This is the end of the Old Covenant order. 5. Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah at His side to show that the glory that belonged to Moses and Elijah was not their own glory, but was owed to Christ. Moses and Elijah entered into glory because they belonged to Christ. They were associated with Him, having been united to Him by faith. Do you remember the story when Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the law? He came down the mountain, and it's a strange account in in, in the book of Exodus. His face was glowing, So that he had to put a veil over his face. But what happened with the passing of time? Moses went up into the presence of God and beheld his glory. And he came down and he was radiant with this this same glory. It's as if it had affected him so much that he now possessed it. But what happened over time? That glory began to fade. It eventually faded away. But here Jesus is glorified on the mountain. And Moses and Elijah are with him in glory Their glory, the the glory that they enjoyed, was owed to the glory of Christ, you see. And so we are shown this in this story. Look with me now at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Why why is this? (laughs) That the disciples are found sleeping during very significant moments, perhaps to show their dullness and their inability to comprehend the true meaning of things being accomplished in their midst. And then we continue reading, But when they became fully awake, so they were not groggy or dreaming, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men who stood with Him. And as the men were parting from Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter again speaks as the leader of the group. As Moses and Elijah began to depart, he spoke up. One thing that... Peter certainly did not lack with boldness. There he beholds this marvelous scene. These great men are standing before him, Jesus the Messiah, but Elijah and Moses as well. And as they begin to depart and as the glory begins to fade, he, he interjects himself into the situation. He says, wait, wait, why don't, we, why don't we put up some tents and remain here like this together? I think we should appreciate Peter's heart He was so very blessed to behold Christ, the Son of Man, in glory. And he was blessed to see Moses and Elijah glorified with Christ, for they had testified concerning Christ and had placed their faith in Him. Stated differently, Peter along with James and John were given a glimpse of the glory of the Kingdom of God, and they wished to stay there. They wished for that glory to remain. When Moses and Elijah prepared to depart, and the glory began to fade, he spoke up and said, Don't go. Let us abide here in this condition. Let us abide here in this state of being. We don't want it to end. It's so good. We do not want this state of being to the end, to end. And then at the end of verse 33, we find this little remark from Luke, Peter knew not what he said. In other words, he didn't realize what he was saying. He didn't know what he was talking about. His request was made out of ignorance. Why was it not time to remain in this state? Well, Peter, James, and John were in this moment given a glimpse of what was to come. It was not yet time for the Son of Man to enter permanently into this state of glory. But they were given a glimpse of His glory and of the glory of the kingdom of God that was still to come. Look with me now at verse 34. As Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud... And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The cloud mentioned in verse 28 must be associated with the glory cloud that appeared often in the days of Moses. It was the cloud through which God manifested His presence This was the cloud that led Israel in the wilderness after the Exodus. A cloud descended upon Sinai, and Moses was invited to come up to receive the law, remember? And the cloud filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple. The cloud signified God's presence, and here the cloud descended to sweep Moses and Elijah away and to give honor to Christ. And we are told that Peter, James, and John were afraid. So this glory that belongs to Christ, the Son of Man, began to fade, It was not yet time for it to abide permanently. It was not time for the Son of Man to enter into glory yet. This was a foretaste of those things. But this old covenant cloud of glory came in. The the old covenant order was not yet passing away in full. And it caused Peter, James, and John to tremble with fear. Isn't it interesting to notice the different responses from these men? When they beheld the glory of Christ, the Son of Man, they said, We love this. We want to abide in this glory We want it to remain. Let's make structures and stay for a while at least, if not permanently. But as the glory cloud of the old covenant order swept over them, they began to tremble with fear. And so it is with the law of Moses and the law of God. It does not bring us to glory, but it causes us to tremble with fear. The text says that a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This was the voice of God. Here, much like at Christ's baptism, God the Father testifies to the identity of Jesus. This is is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. This is my Son, He said. Uh, You and I are sons and daughters of God by virtue of our creation and our redemption and our adoption in Christ Jesus. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the natural Son of God, we might say. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, God Almighty. The voice from the cloud also said, this is my chosen one. Now, if you have faith in Christ, it is because you have been graciously chosen by God for salvation in Christ. This is a reference to the doctrine of election or predestination that is frequently taught in the scriptures. But Christ is God's chosen one in a different sense. He was not chosen to be saved, but to be the Savior of God's people, the Messiah, the great prophet, priest, and king of the elect. The prophecy of Isaiah 42, which was read earlier, is certainly behind this utterance. Psalm 89, 3-4 also stands in the background. There God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations." The voice that came from this cloud identified Jesus as the Son of God. It identified Jesus as the Chosen One that the prophets of old had spoken of. These words were concerning Jesus. They were not concerning Moses or Elijah. For Jesus is the Messiah, God's Chosen One. Earlier I asked, How can it be that we will enter into glory? How can it be That we will ever enter into glory. How has the way into glory been opened up? The answer is that the way into glory has been opened up by Jesus, the Son of Man. Adam fell short of the glory of God. He failed to obtain that state of being, that higher form of life, by his fall into sin and his breaking of the covenant of works. He broke that covenant that God made with him in the garden. By rebelling against God in the heart and eating of the forbidden tree. But Jesus Christ has earned life and glory. How did He earn it, you ask? He earned life and glory by keeping the terms of the covenant that God had made with Him. And what covenant is this? We call it the covenant of redemption. When the Scriptures are considered thoroughly and with care, we see that God the Father entered into an agreement with God the Son in eternity to save a people and to reconcile them to the Father. John 17 reveals this. There Jesus prays for those given to Him by the Father before the foundation of the earth. In Isaiah 42, in the passage we read just a moment ago, we see this concept as well. There the Lord speaks to the Chosen One, the Messiah, saying, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And what would the Son of God have to do to redeem those given to Him by the Father, to save them from sin? He would have to assume a human nature so that He would not only be the Son of God, but also the Son of Man. And as a man, he would have to keep God's law perfectly. He would have to suffer in the whole of life. He would have to resist every temptation. He would have to be crucified, die, and be buried, and on the third day be raised into what state of being? Into the state of glory. And this he would do, not for himself only, but for others too. He would do it for all that God had given to him in eternity. Like Adam before him, he would act as a representative of others. Adam represented all humanity, and here Christ is representing all of God's elect. He would function as a federal or covenantal head. He would live, die, and be raised to a state of glory, not only for himself, but for others. The way to glory has been opened up by Christ, the second Adam, the Son of Man, who is also the person of the eternal Son of God. And how can we enter into glory? The answer is this, friends, and you must know this. Only by being united to Christ by faith. He must be our covenantal head. You and I have been born into this world in Adam, with him as our covenantal head. And where does Adam bring us? Not to glory, but into a state of sin and misery. You must be born again and raised to glory through union with Christ. You must have Him as your Lord and Savior. You must have Him as your head, as your representative. For He is the only one who has entered into glory. He is the only man who has entered into glory. He is the Son of Man, the Son of God. And He entered into glory in order to make a way for us to enter into glory as well. When Jesus was transfigured on that mountain in front of those three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, It was to show what He was about to do. He was about to enter into glory and He would do it how? Through suffering, through rejection, through death. He would die, but on the third day, which is the first day of the week, also called the eighth day, He would be raised, raised to glory, raised to life incorruptible. So do you wish to go to life and glory when you die? That is really the question. Do you wish to behold the beatific vision, the radiant splendor of the glory of God? Then you had better be found in Christ. You had better be united to Him by faith. For He has entered into glory as a forerunner and firstfruits. He has entered in as the first of a kind, so that He might bring many sons and daughters to glory. And if you have been raised with Christ, then I will exhort you in conclusion with the words of Paul. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory." Thanks be to God that He has opened up the way to glory for us through Christ the Lord. Let's bow together for a word of prayer and then we will sing. Father in Heaven, give us understanding. Give us understanding of the things revealed within the Holy Scriptures from Genesis 1 through to the end of the book of Revelation. Lord, may we comprehend the wonderful message of the Gospel. May we see what Christ has done for us. May we understand who He is and what He has done. And may we trust in Him. I pray for those who do not yet have Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would draw them to faith. That they would see what is offered to them in the Gospel. The forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation with you, O God. Life everlasting. And may they run to Christ and embrace Him. May they trust in Him with all of their heart and follow Him faithfully all the days of their life. Lord, I pray for those who do know Christ. I pray, O God, that You would deepen our understanding of who He is and what He has done, so that our love for Him would grow more fervent and sincere. Lord, do help us to do what Paul has exhorted us to do, and to live not for the things of this world, but to live for life in the eternal kingdom of God. For we do know that when Christ appears we will be ushered into glory with Him. This is our hope. It is in Christ Jesus the Lord. It's in His name that we pray, therefore, and all of God's people say, Amen.